Today on Global Value Creators, we're thrilled to welcome our friend Henry McGovern, founder of Amrest, the largest restaurant chain in Europe, and now a co-owner of Vapiano. After the Berlin Wall fell, Henry left college to seek opportunities in a changing Europe, moving across the world to Wrocław, Poland, where he secured the rights for a pizza hut in 1993, and 26 years later owned more than 2,300 restaurants. He is considered among the most successful entrepreneurs in the restaurant industry, and we think his story is one of the most remarkable we have discovered. In this in-depth conversation, Henry discusses how he built Amrest, the secrets to his anything-is-possible culture, and the future of the restaurant industry post-COVID. Thanks so much, Henry, for taking the time. We're really excited to have you. Um, we've been meaning to do this for some time, and I thought considering the, uh, the COVID crisis and everything else going on, uh, it'd be an interesting, particularly interesting time to talk about restaurants. So I was hoping to just kick it off. Uh, maybe we could just start at the beginning. You were born in the States, and, and maybe you could just uh, take, it, take it from there and tell us, tell us the story. Sure, I'll try and summarize 50 years in five minutes, but that's uh, not so easy. <laughs> ten, 10 years uh, per minute, yeah. Yeah, 10 years per minute. Well, I guess it all started uh, the fascination with Europe because my dad, I have six brothers and sisters, and uh, in the early 70s, the U.S. was a bit of a mess, and my dad decided, hey, let's take all of the children that we have and take them somewhere where uh, there's not all this chaos. And so he took us to Germany. And uh, my older brothers and sisters went to German schools and I uh, got to travel around with, with the family. And so you have these early childhood memories, more stories that come up. So when the Berlin Wall fell, um, I was just particularly interested to go back. We had some pictures of the whole family in East Berlin in, uh, in mid-1970s and I was just a little boy. But uh, so I was curious to see it. So I really uh, came back over the, uh, to uh, Central Europe out of more of a just interest in seeing what was the most interesting thing in the world that year, which was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then uh, that sparked an interest to say, hey, you know, this is going to be a pretty major change. Why don't I go and see if you know, there's an opportunity to spend a year or two and just get a life experience and what's the most interesting thing happening in the world. And uh, so I did that. I started a business when I was at Georgetown uh, and had the ability to sell half of that. You know, I put a little bit of change in my pocket and I said, okay, I can afford a year off. And, and that was in I, real estate, right? Yeah, that was in real estate. I started a company called Student Housing Association. Now there's quite a bit of businesses in providing off-campus housing, but that was sort of the very beginning of universities were growing their enrollments heavily, but they didn't have the the housing stock to be able to serve them. And all the landlords hated students, but they were one of the best paying tenants. So uh, it's funny, you know, you always wonder where life would have taken you. Uh, that business was fantastic. And I started it my junior year and or, or into my sophomore year and immediately had about 105 properties. Uh, we were collecting rent semesterly, which I think was the first time anybody had ever done that. So I had amazing cash flow. And uh, yeah, who knew if I had known about business, I would have made, you know, a lot more out of that. But uh Looking back on it, it was it was really fantastic, and so I uh, bought a couple of buildings. I had the cash flow from those rents, and so I could afford a year off. And I just thought, if I don't do it now, you know, when the hell will I? And uh, so I got on a plane, and then I kept going east a little bit. I got to Berlin. And I said, oh well, I should go see what Poland, Czech, and Hungary looked like. I rented a car. I drove over to the Polish border and the. The the border controls, they just laughed at me and they're like, you think you can just drive a German car over into Poland? 
it's not, it doesn't work that way. You know, it'll be stolen in about an hour. So I said, oh, okay, I guess, you know, this isn't Kansas anymore kind of moment. And, uh, and this was in the summer in, or this was in, dropped uh, out or? yeah, this, this was, no, this was um, right after the Bush election in uh, 92, because I did a little bit of work for that and then uh, decided I would uh, head over with a good friend of mine, Don Kendall, who was uh, working really uh, a lot on the campaign. Uh, so that was November of 92. And uh, then uh, got over, went to Poland, Czech, Hungary, uh, checked those out, thought, wow, this is interesting. I decided... I needed to see a bit more of, of Poland. So after the Christmas holidays, flew back in January and I drove the entire uh, country of Poland in January. And if you had seen the roads back then, you'd realize what a harrowing tale that is. It was actually interesting. Later on, I set a rule that I wouldn't invest in a country until I drove it um, because you really got to understand it, which led to a very bizarre trip 10 years later with my wife and two dogs driving a Jeep through Ukraine. Um, also in January. Uh, so I didn't learn my lessons about the months, it seems like, but it led me to not investing in the Ukraine, which was a damn good decision. Absolutely. So that takes us to, uh, you know, the beginning of the company. I bought a building. The, actually, the, I got lucky, bought the first uh, privatized building on the main square of, of Rotswov, which is a town in the southwest corner of, uh, of Poland. And uh, when I went to fix it up and rent it, there's lots of different stories. I can tell you a couple of side ones there. Well, but, I'd uh, love to hear the, the phone line story, if, if you don't mind. That's one of my favorites. Okay, sure. Uh, so you got to picture the environment. I show up, I'm, I'm 25 years old. I play in this uh, businessmen's tennis tournament of Wrocław two days after I arrive. Obviously, I have no business, and I'm not sure I'm a business, but, but somehow I play. I make it into the finals, and so I'm meeting all the people of town. And uh, so the the uh, story goes, the woman who was translating me, a, a university student, she said, oh, you're interested in real estate. Well, the first auction is on uh, next week if you want to go. So there is some fun stories of trying to figure out, well, how do I register? And I don't have a company yet, et cetera. And so I go into the bank with my visa card and I'm taking visa advances on my, on my card. And um, $25,000, which was the deposit that was required, equaled 186 million Zwadis. It just sounded an astounding figure. So here I am with 186 million Zwadis of cash and I'm just walking out of the bank with it in a bag and, and people, you know, think I'm completely mad. I walk over to the mayor's office. I'm like, look, I don't have an account yet, but here's 186 million. You can imagine their faces for that one. And uh, so we uh, anyway, we get registered. We buy the building. That's kind of fun because the wealthiest guy in the city was the only one in the room until I showed up. And then he didn't know what to make of an American uh, with nothing to do but talk about his first experience in, in Poland, how it was going to go. So he walked out, and I'm the only guy left in the room. And Evan, even I can win an auction where I'm the only guy left in the room. So uh, I do that, and then I you know, say, oh, God, now i got to figure out you know, how do you deal with things here? How do you renovate, set up the company, get all that done, buy the building? And um, then I want to build the first Class A office building in the city. So... 
uh, I'm told I have to go meet the president of the phone company to get phone lines. And this is the days where phone and data lines were separate, right? So I put on my coat and tie, I go in and I'm invited into the president's office and I got to go back to good, proper communist times. I mean, it really wasn't communism anymore, but a phone company, a state utility was still very much that way. 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in this big room. I'm given a shot of vodka and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, okay. I have my shot of vodka at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I explained to this nice man, hey, I've traveled all around Poland. I think Wrocław is really a nice city. I'd like to build the first class A office building. It's seven stories high. I need 100, data, 100 phone lines and 50 data lines. And uh, it's just this horrible, awkward silence. And, you know, so I turned to the translator being, you know, the dumb American, like, look, it was really simple. How did you miss it? Just seven stories. That, and the translator looks back at me and he says, Henry, I understood. It's just I need you to understand that my family's been waiting 15 years for one phone line. So I go sick ashen and the president of the phone company looks at me. I, I mean, he must have thought I was going to throw up on his uh, table, right? I, I just had the vodka shot. I go all white. Heavy. So he looks at me. He says, I understand. I can give you four phone lines and three data lines. And I guess I was supposed to be grateful. I don't know. I guess I was, you know, I'm still stunned. It's a seven-story building. I'm not even going to have one phone line per floor, right? So I'm just thinking, there goes my first cash. I mean, I might as well go home and pack it up and go back. So anyway, uh, turns out I get back to the office and we've hired this one woman, Isabella. And she's like, you did what? You got seven? What? No way. And I said, how much did you have to pay? He didn't pay anything. I just, he gave them to me. No, no, no way. So she says, this is unbelievable. So she had a contact at the largest bank in the country, uh, Bank Pekao. And she says, they will take the space immediately if we give them all the data lines. I'm like, what are you kidding me? So that's what happens. So she calls Bank Pekao. They take two floors. They pay me $21 in dollars um, exchange rate uh, back then, you know, was so favorable. So, and then they say, okay, if you need to fix the building, we'll loan you $2 million. So I got my first tenant, $2 million loan to fix the bank because this guy gave me seven, uh, you know, four phone lines. And, and I said, I have to keep one for the restaurant. So I had one for the restaurant. I gave the rest to the bank. And uh, yeah, so I had no idea what I was doing, as you can tell by that story. I, uh, I went over not understanding the environment, et cetera, but uh, it came out that that was fine. Uh, so, you know, a little so, bit of bold moves and that was a little bit of luck and it went well. So in the bottom, then you, 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 you weren't, uh, you weren't planning to open a restaurant right at the beginning or, no. or you, you were going to rent no. it out, I suppose. Yeah. I went to rent it out and uh, had never worked in a restaurant, uh, no experience and uh, very lucky to have some very senior contacts at PepsiCo. And they basically said, no, we don't want to rent a place in Wrocław, Poland. But if you're so confident, you can have the franchise. So uh, we, ended up, we ended up with the franchise uh, for Pizza Hut and uh, went about opening a, a restaurant. And again, lots of funny stories because we had no idea what we were doing. But on November 9th, 1993, we, we opened up our, our first restaurant. 
Maybe you could just talk a little bit about, I, I think there was a, a tax issue or a permitting issue, if I recall. And you, you also, I think, slept in the restaurant, the, maybe the, the first few nights before it opened. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of color about that first restaurant. Well, let's uh, try and put things into perspective because uh, you go to Central Europe today and it's it's kind of hard to appreciate how different life was. Uh, the phone story gives you a little bit of it. But uh, this was a city of about 700,000 people. And maybe there were five restaurants, um, you know, uh, when the wall came down. So you had no infrastructure. Uh, the same with the phone lines you had to do with, um, with electricity and everything else. And we're so excited to get open. And, uh, you know, we've uh, got a little bit, of, little bit of education on uh, how to use Excel basically back then. And... Uh, it's uh, this is pre-mobile phones as uh, another important element of this. So just getting things organized, we had to walk over to the post office to send a fax. Um, still, and it makes it sound like it's in some long lost era, and in a way, it is. Uh, but you know, we've we've gotten all of our we've invested about two million to get the building up so that the bank could move in and build the restaurant. We still had four floors to build. But again, back to the strictness of communism, the VAT rules had been put in and they were very, very strict on exactly what needed to be on a VAT invoice. There were 14 points. And if you were missing any of them, they would, they would throw it out. Unbeknownst to us, when you would file, and I, I think this is true in a lot of places, so maybe it's pertinent to uh, stupid young guys trying to open up in new markets still. Um, but uh, we went to claim our VAT input because it was an investment. We were overpaying a lot of VAT on all the investment stuff. So we were due a return. And um, so we filed, but at the same time, we decided we would put our books in an order that made sense to us, not necessarily in keeping with uh, its, the strict requirements of the Polish government. And so we had all of these binders laid out because we had an empty floor. So we just had this huge room with all of our invoices and binders laid out. And we were trying to put things in a sense of order and we filed and we asked for a $200,000 refund. And uh, so immediately the tax office showed up to audit us and inspect it. And they find all these papers everywhere and we weren't keeping it in the format that was required. So the maximum fine they could give us was five times the requested amount, which was a million dollars, which... Well, we had been open for six days and um, I didn't have the money, of course, uh, nowhere close. And so six days open, they padlocked our building. And that's pretty tough when you're a retail, cool Western brand that's opening up and all of a sudden there's a big sticker on your front window that you haven't paid your taxes. Uh, so that was about as brutal as thing. And, and I just, you know, I called up the, uh, the ambassador after trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And I said, look, I mean, I don't know if there's anything anybody can do, but I'm just going to go home. Right. I mean, they can have the restaurant. I don't know what they'll do with it, but I don't have a million dollars to give them and I just can't do it. So after some very awkward days, they finally came back and said, okay, well, we're just, we're going to act like you never filed. And so you're not going to get your 200,000 back. And obviously, I was counting on that for working capital, just having opened a restaurant. 
So yeah, my first opening was zero working capital. So we needed to get profitable quickly. That was the good news. <laughs> so that's what happened. I mean, we really did. We got profitable very quickly and one restaurant led to two and two led to three. And then four was a mistake and five was a mistake. And luckily six worked out. And we started growing and we were quite profitable. Uh, and the business just grew like any good entrepreneurial story, you know, one, two, three, and then five and then 10. And um, it took us a, a while to get up to uh, about 20 restaurants. And then uh, PepsiCo bought PepsiCo bought the largest chocolate uh, manufacturer in Poland, a company called Vettel. They invested 300 million back then and they decided, okay, we want to have Poland as an all equity market. So we're not going to give you any more expansion. And that led to some interesting discussions. And then they said, okay, well, if you want to buy the Czech Republic business, it's a very small money losing business. There were six restaurants there that had lost $8 million. And so we overpaid for some money losing restaurants and it taught us a ton. I mean, we had to learn how to work at new markets. It made us international. I mean, it was only 120 miles apart, but it was still, I mean, it was a new market with new rules and um, a new brand. Uh, so we ended up in the KFC business with that acquisition. And, uh, Turned it around really quickly. A lot of what we had learned in Poland worked. Um, we, you know, focused a lot on building the brand and building local supply and and making people feel like it was an accessible, aspirational experience for them. And we really became one of the first accessible, aspirational, retail, local, foreign brands that could work. Um, and so we were local, but we were foreign. You know, so we had the big brand names. And uh, we turned that around and PepsiCo ended up having a lot of trouble in Poland on their own. Um, so a few years later, we had a substantial opportunity to, to triple the business because they were about double of our size then. And uh, in 2000, we, we merged the businesses together um, in, a, in a deal because I didn't have cash to buy them. Um, but we had a buyout plan for the next five years. So in 2005, we were able to buy them fully out of the business. And by then, the businesses uh, had gone. So when we bought them, we were 28 restaurants. They were 54. Uh, then uh, we uh, about tripled the business in the next five years. So we were a little over, we were about 250 restaurants and uh, looked at taking the company public uh, to raise some cash to get them out. And And I thought my time was was over and that became one of the hallmarks of my 26 year stay. I thought I was leaving every two years. Every two years I was, okay, this experience is over, time to move on. But somehow, you know, an opportunity or the business just kept being really interesting or I got married or I had another child or, or something seemed to keep me in place. And we just kept uh, growing the business year after year. No, that's great. And then I guess when you left, it was 2,400 restaurants or so. Is that about right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. We were 2,300 restaurants. Uh, became actually the largest restaurant company in Europe. And uh, not sure how, and I'm not sure anybody ever stood how, uh, you know, a second tier city in Poland ended up producing the largest restaurant company in Europe. Uh, but a lot of Western Europeans were very surprised. I can assure Built you. by an American, no less. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Exactly. So, so what was in terms of the restaurant business? What what is the secret sauce? I mean, it's obviously they're not all a success every single location or brand, but but what was your? It's a notoriously uh, difficult business, uh, obviously. And so, what what was your secret? Uh, would you say if you had to boil it down? 
Yeah, it's hard to always look back and, and find it. Certainly, the culture of our company became quite unique. Uh, we were unique just out of some of the things we've already talked about, right? A, a foreigner in a new country with something that's never been done before. So we attracted uh, you know, young people who thought things could get done that other people didn't think could get done. And, and that led to this uh, motto that we had of which translates basically into anything is possible. And we just ran into so many roadblocks, uh, like you've heard. And I just had to learn those three words. Everybody would tell me, no, not possible. You can't do this. It's not the rules, et cetera. I said, I got so overwhelmed, you know, being a young entrepreneur, the idea of coming into a um, ex-communist, very controlled environment and being told everything has a rule and everything can't be done. And this has never done been done before, et cetera. Uh, so we kind of just learned how to make things happen. And we never accepted that we were dead in the water. We were dead a few times, I can assure you. Uh, you know, it's funny, as we became bigger, we had debt to asset ratios, debt to EBITDA ratios. We had all these controls. I just remember saying, I'll take money from anywhere I can get it at one point. You know, I think debt was like eight and a half times EBITDA at one point, uh, not because I was smart and trying to lever up, just because that was all we had. Um, so, you know, it, uh, it, it was this attitude of let's find, there is a right answer. I always explain, people will come and they'll explain to you why something went wrong. I was like, you know, there's an equally valid answer of why it could have gone right. And there's always, everybody's always got a reason. And I just tried to keep saying, so what's your reason why it should have worked? Or what have you learned that would have made it work now? Because I was sitting here and you're just explaining your excuses or, of why it went this way or that way. So we, we kind of sort of built in this go, go, go culture, but very rapid learning. The other thing is none of us had restaurant experience. And I, you know, I, I'll never know if that really was a good thing or not a good thing. But we kind of basically understood the customer was always right, sort of like some really basic tenants um, that made our service good. Um, we had people that wanted to learn, could learn, and had never been, you know, restaurant wait staff. They had never run a kitchen. So they didn't even know. I remember training things like you have to take a tip. Like you have to understand if somebody gives you um, a hundred dollar bill for a 90 check, nobody's going to tip $10 or 10% of that. You have to go with change. I mean, you can't just go give them a 10 because you're not going to get it. Right. Like, I mean, it sounds so stupid, but like really, really basic stuff. And we became a training culture and we just train, 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 train. And then that became our differentiator. And then of course we created some systems and, we started growing faster than anybody else. And so that sort of reinforced our position. We were the best buyer. We became the best buyer and the best trainer of the people. And then more people wanted us to buy them. And we had more people applying. It's amazing. We had 50,000 people when I left. And I can only remember sort of once or twice where we didn't have enough people. So it was, we were growing that quickly, adding seven, 8,000 people a year, plus the turnover, which is difficult in our, in our industry. But we always had enough people, and it was always the biggest fear of part of uh, the more conservative part of the management team always said, oh, no, we're not going to have enough people next year. We can't build 200 restaurants. We can't build 250 restaurants. There's too many people. Um, we won't get them through the system. But somehow the culture kept great people 
coming through the system and, and that enabled us to do it. Let's, uh, if you can, uh, dive in a little bit on the culture topic, because I, I find it fascinating, particularly that you've, you've, uh, you came up with a title of it. Some companies sort of have it, but don't really express it, I, I think, as well as, as you did. Um, I, I guess you, you mentioned how, how it was one of the main differentiators and, and led you to success. But can, can you talk about where that came from? I, I mean, was it just inherent in you and then sort of maybe the impact it had personally as well on, on just how you, you live life? And, and obviously, you mentioned the business, but how, how easy is that to teach people? Do you just do it or how, how does that work? There was a lot of doubt. It's a great question. And I wish I could, I wish I could nail it down to what were the key moments. I mean, you can always look back and think of some, some moments that, that made you realize, okay, our culture is serious and we're not going to trade it out. We're not going to make, you know, sacrifices against it. That that's going to be paramount above all. Uh, but it happened very early in the company. Uh, we had some real question marks in terms of, did we have the right management team? Was I, with my real estate background, capable of leading a restaurant operation? Uh, a couple of very senior staff came to me in October of, of 95, so just two years into the company, and said, Henry, you're just not, you're just not the right guy to, to lead through this environment and we're going to leave. And so I said, you know, wait a minute, let's, uh, let's regroup here. I'm not sure. Um, that's the fact, give me six months, trust me for six months. And we did our first sort of management offsite, which everybody does uh, today, but, um, that led to some real thinking. And then I read a few books and the next year, uh, in 96, I decided, okay, I really need to nail down, what are we trying to do? What are our values? Uh, what are our goals? How's this going to get structured? And so at a seemingly great expense then, I, I took six, eight of us to uh, Sweden for a, for a weekend, um, which coming out of Poland was quite expensive for us. And, but we had an amazing time. And we wrote down our core values. We, we wrote down um, a three-year plan of, of what we wanted to do with the company. And we came back and we just pushed those values heavily. We built a lot of systems around our training and they stuck. I mean, amazingly, over the next 20 years, we really didn't change them. Uh, we added a couple of changes to the words around customer to make sure it was clear um, where the relationship sat between the team and, and the customer base. Uh, and there was a, a bit of, uh, we had, this training commitment to people, the development of people, but it sounded like all the responsibility sat on the company and not enough sat with the individual. So we changed the wording of that one to make it clear that the individual owned their own development, but the company would support it. And um, it worked. And then as we bought different countries or went into different countries, or we always wondered, well, how the hell is this going to work? How are our values going to translate? And I can assure you taking a Polish company into Germany the Germans don't exactly look to the Poles as like the, the best operators or the, or the strongest, you know, culture that they want to identify with. So, you know, we had a ton of worries about that. But somehow this mix between let's have a lot of fun, expect a lot of our people, and we'll spend a lot to develop you. That blend of trust yet demanding environment really worked. And, and you live it personally, too. Well, outside the business, the same culture, I would say. 
I don't think there's much choice. Uh, it's kind of like this whole conversation between work-life balance. I haven't figured out that there's more than one life that we're living in some parallel world. To me, it's you get one life and you live it the best you can. And uh, I, I never, there are plenty of different disagreements around that within our executive team of what was expected. I said, look, if you're not enjoying yourself at any time, it's just the wrong place. Um, we're living very interesting lives. I mean, I look back on my life and think, God, how lucky I was that I got on that plane. Um, I might have built a, even a more interesting business in uh, Washington, D.C., but it never would have given me the the different viewpoints I had and the life experiences I've had. So, uh, got it, you know, working through all that we did, of course, it was at times too much work or a ton of work, et cetera, but it blended into a life that's been super interesting. So, uh, I think you have to, I think they have to be aligned. You drive yourself crazy if you're misaligned and in the company, the same thing. If, you know, culture is different than strategy or is different, um, than the way the executives are acting. It just doesn't work. You have to have alignment between strategy, structure, and culture. And any of those things get out of whack, then people don't know what to believe or trust. Uh, and I think the same is true of the CEO. So hopefully, yeah, they've all matched together in some format that people could believe and trust in. At multiple points, um, I think you, you've made you made an enormous bet. I, I think, in particular, you agreed to buy La Tagliatelle for uh, La Tagliatelle, excuse me, for something like two hundred million uh, euros. If I'm, or excuse me, two hundred million dollars. Um, I think it was done overnight. Um, maybe you could just talk about. Most people would just think that's downright scary, right? I mean, agreeing to a deal overnight and staying up and all this kind of thing. How do you how do you do that time and again? Uh yeah, people either scary or stupid. I'm not sure which is the better answer there. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was the crisis times. It was after uh, the economic fallout of 2008 and Spain got hit worse than any other country. Uh, and I had a friend who's still a very close friend, Steve Winnegar, who uh, had built up this business called La Tagliatella. And it was the number two uh, Italian casual dining player in, in Spain, but it had the best margins I had seen. It was a great business. And he had told me about it a year before, but we didn't have any money. We didn't have enough to pull it off. And I was in the States and I got a phone call from another friend saying, Hey, I think Steve's deal with Lion Capital fell apart. Um, maybe you've got a window to get back in there. I called him up and I said, Hey, can we take a look at it again? He said, well, it's actually not falling apart. It's just that they decided that they've spent all of their money out of fund four and they're going to move this into fund five. So they've asked for an 18 day delay. And I said, well, that means you're bound or you're not bound. He said, we're not. I said, well, so can I come? And he said, sure, you can come, but I'm not sure anything's going to happen. So yeah, long story short, I fly over from, uh, I was in the States at the time I fly over spend a day. And I'm like, we can do this. He says, well, um, you know, you really only have 14 days. And then, uh, so I said, well, I haven't been home. I haven't seen my wife in a week. Can I just go home? I'll go home for a day and then I'll come back. Uh, I come back and he says, look, my private equity partners have told me I shouldn't have told you that they, they don't want to walk away. It's too risky. This is the deal that's going to make their fund. Um, 
you know, the crisis has been so bad here. They're going to want to raise another fund. If this falls apart on them, they're just, you know, they need this win. So the head of the fund said, I can't do it. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll close in 48 hours. He said, what do you mean you'll close in 48 hours? So it was, it was a 202 million um, uh, euro deal. And uh, we didn't have the money secured yet. Uh, that was going to need to be done as well. And it's, it's too long a story probably for this, uh, for this interview, discussion, whatever this is. And, uh, but it was the craziest next 24 hours because the CEO of Line Capital found out I was in town, said, hey, I'm coming over. Do not break this deal up. And uh, it all kind of crashed. I was told to get out of the building. And uh, I told the head of, uh, of the private equities office, we were in his lawyer's office. I said, you're going to have to call the police if you want me to leave. And I just laid down on the floor and I said, the good guys have to win this one. These guys screwed you. They were supposed to go to closing last week. They didn't show up to closing. They're now telling you 18 days. You promised me this business on Sunday. I'm not leaving till the good guys win. And they thought I was completely out of my mind, which I kind of was. And uh, at that point, we were supposed to, you know, I was promising Thursday. I think it was Tuesday. I said, okay, tomorrow at two o'clock we sign. They said, are you kidding me? It's impossible. We've got a shareholders agreement to do. We've got to do share purchases agreement. We've got to do other things. And I said, you know what? Steve and I can shake hands on this. You're the problem. And you want earnouts and all the other things that private equity want. I said, if you'll just exit for some number, we can get a share purchase done by tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And he looked at me. He was like, and then this is when I knew it was over. He said, uh, typical P. He said, okay. For three million more, and I said, "Yeah, for three million more." And uh, so we stayed up all night, thirty-four of us from big four accounting firm, all of the lawyers, and uh, a couple of people passed out some point on the floor at different times. But the next day at two o'clock, yeah, we we signed, and then there was another whole funny part because uh, I didn't have the money yet. We signed, and now we needed to figure out how we were going to get the banks comfortable that we could make a uh, $20 million deposit or Euro deposit into uh, Spain at the time. But we got there. Another Cisco Yes Mojleva story that really changed the projection of, of the company for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. You, you mentioned earlier there were a few near-death or almost death experiences. Did, did you ever, during the 26 years, think, I, I've gone a little too far, maybe it's it's over? You know, um, For sure. What, what maybe you could talk about? For sure. Was there a certain instance that you can remember? Well, I think um, the hardest was not a financial one. It was for me personally, but this is more of a story of where I thought I was over um, rather than the company. I mean, there were times in the company, most of our acquisitions, actually all of our acquisitions were successful, but uh, we had one company where we got 33%. We were going for control and uh, I wanted to... uh, I wanted to take control, but we had only gotten to 33%. We had an option uh, to get another 30% of the company. So we were clearly headed to control and we got our board uh, seats appointed to us. And we had our first board meeting sitting there as 30% owners. And you know, it's the first time we were seeing real inside numbers. And I just went, this company's bankrupt. And the books were cooked. This was a public company, but the books were cooked. 
And I was just staring that I had just totally screwed up and our due diligence hadn't pulled it up. And all of a sudden, publicly, we were a public company buying another public company. We were threatened with the lawsuits. Uh, it was it was a mess. And somehow somebody else didn't believe us when we said the company was bankrupt and thought we were just trying to kill a competitor and and you know gently get them off the out of our way. And uh, so we got an offer to pay us 50 cents on the dollar for what we had just paid. And they said, if you know, if you think that this thing is bankrupt, well, this is a great gift. Put your money where your mouth is. And um, so I said, gladly, please. And the company actually was bankrupt and it was a great based decision. So we got saved by getting 50% of our money back on it. But uh, anyway, that's wow. uh, a close yeah. call. Live and learn. Close call. Close yeah. Call. Maybe we could turn a little bit to the back to the team on the culture side. I was curious how you thought about incentivizing everyone, not only obviously Mark and the others, but, but throughout the organization. Yes. Uh from early days, I mean, uh, very early days, I could go back to, you know, restaurant three, four, even, um, we decided that every, uh, restaurant general managers, we call them, uh, should be treated as if it was their business. And we tried to, um, tried to build the management teams and structures where they felt ownership. So they had part of the marketing budget to spend. They had uh, a lot of local store. Um, initiatives to be able to do. And then we, um, we put a bonus plan in that uh, came out of cash flow. And it was their restaurant cash flow, not a lot of artificial overhead expenses, or you got to pay for this or that. It was just, you know, here's the restaurant P&L, here's the allocations, you're going to get a 25% uh, bonus based on EBITDA. So everybody in the company in a place that wasn't very Entrepreneurial or very um, business-minded ended up learning a PL very precisely, and that led longer and longer into uh, just uh, detail around know your PL, know the business, and so as you know the business grew, we kept building incentive plans that were done that way, and um, so we uh, we I guess we always had this mentality of entrepreneurship. In, in yep. 2012, um, I believe you you changed your title from chief executive officer to chief emotional officer, and I was wondering what that meant and and in practice and what how did that change what you were doing? Yes, uh, so the business grew, you know, and I said I was leaving every two years, and I really meant it. I really was. And in 2012, I uh, I realized that the business had gotten so big, my job had become more and more just motivating people, showing them what was possible. It's just going as much leave it. I wasn't, I wasn't sitting in on um, performance reviews as much. I wasn't uh, there in the day-to-day -day operations. I wasn't the one asking all the uh, P&L questions. And I was, I was barely honestly even looking at the P&L anymore. I mean, I was for my own, but I, I had great trust that somebody else had been through all the lines and I didn't need to sit there and tie out balance sheets and that stuff. And I just became more and more is we can do this, you know, let's, let's make it happen. Um, where's the opportunity? How are we thinking strategically? And my, my job became sort of 25%. Do we have the right strategy for the next three years? Do we have the right direction for this thing? Um, do we have 
the right executive team because at this point uh, we had probably already changed the management team two times, I guess, in the history. And I realized at 100 million, it took a very different team. At 300 million again, and at a billion, it was going to take a, another change. And we were closing in on the opportunity to be a billion dollar business. And um, so I, uh, I met a friend of mine, uh, Thomas is his name, in Dubai. He's a Swedish guy. And we were just talking about where he said, well, just think about different things. Like, what are you? You're talking about energy. You're talking about, I was like, yeah, emotions. That's what I drive it. I'll just be the chief emotional officer and I'll leave the executive stuff to the people who are better at the executive stuff. So I came back and I did this totally weird psychedelic presentation to our top 300 people. Very psychedelic, uh, talking about purposeology and what our purpose was and what we could be. And, and people are looking at me half, you know, ready to scream and get excited and half, has this guy totally lost his mind now? And I said, from now on, I'm the chief emotional officer and we're going to make sure our culture is just completely unique. And, and it did, you, you, you saw the room just literally split in half, like, okay, he's definitely gone now. I mean, he's off the deep end. And the other half was like, yeah, this is so cool. This is exactly what we should be. And uh, luckily uh, the latter ended up carrying the day, but I'm so happy I did it, Evan. I mean, it's, you look back and you said, was it, you know, was it corny? Was it fake? Uh, it, was it a PR stunt? No, it was an internal thing. It really ended up driving expectations around what was a conversation with the guy running the company going to look like, you know, was it going to get lost in detail or was it, was a lot expected around, am I driving the culture? Do I have the right vision? Um, what are we talking about as a company? And, so it it, it uh, for me it was liberating and I'm super happy I did it. And and did you change though what you were doing during the day? You, you gave up some executive, um, uh, yeah, kind of work. I did. Got it. Got it. I did. You you talk about um, I guess somewhat relatedly having um, six sleepless nights, a minimum of six sleepless nights per year. Maybe you could yeah. just talk about why you believe that. Um, I. I'm not religious on the six. I think that different people can do different things. I mean, I've met people that have more uh, because they physically can. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those questions that makes people stop and think. Because if I say to people, hey, how many sleepless nights should you have? Most people I've met will say zero because they've read it's not healthy. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, if you took your wife to Florence and spent the night out and then stayed up all night with her with you know a candlelit room how would you feel or more importantly how would she feel and they're like yeah i should probably do that once in a while and uh then i like you know i remember great stories of when i would travel a new place and then you'd end up where i said in college you remember going out all night and being at a nightclub and just having a blast i was in new york and in the studio of 54 days. I remember that. It was just unbelievable, right? I said, so there's great fun there. And I said, uh, you know, my story of Spain that I told you before when we bought La Tagliatella, that was a night almost all of us will remember fondly. Uh, and so, you know, you look at life and you say, well, what are the good reasons? Fear is actually a decent reason every once in a while to have a sleepless night because it makes you get really focused on what the, issues are, right? You just say, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. 
something's wrong here. What am I going to do? So even though fear sounds like a bad reason, every once in a while, I think it's a good reason. Opportunity is a great reason. I can't miss this moment, right? Like I've just got to, I've got to be in this moment right now. And it means you're taking enough risk. You're pushing it to the wall enough. You're making it happen. Romance is a, is a great one. Fun is a great one. Just, you know, every once I, I think going to a place like New York City or Shanghai or uh, places that really have an amazing nightlife and spending a night, uh, you know, we're only talking about seven in the morning till seven in the morning. You can then fall asleep all you want, right? But make sure you get that full day, all of it. Just get all of it. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying just take it all one day. And yeah, really that maybe life. once a quarter, maybe once a month, whatever suits you, but just do it. On the, on the scared side, um, you, you talked about how sort of the ability to push toward the wall or, or break through the wall. Um, I, I was just curious sort of where that strength for you uh, came from over your time. You know, um, w- when did it come about? And, and particularly through personal difficulties, you touched on it a bit earlier, but I, I like that phrase of sort of, I think, going through the wall, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, my father had a very tough time when I was 12 years old with, uh, he had seven children and he lost his business. So he was an entrepreneur and uh, it was hard to appreciate at the time. I remember hitting 50 and being, oh my gosh, this is exactly what happened to my dad. I don't know how I would have done with seven children and losing my business and having to start over. Uh, but a few times I, I've thought about that and how do you how do you, you know, have the courage to do it? I think that um, probably... I'm, I'm luckily consistent in my life. I, I don't think my life has changed a whole lot is, as I built the business and grew. And so I probably wasn't as afraid as, as some people are about taking a step backwards. You see in a lot of people, losing things is much uh, harder than gaining things. Um, people are much more afraid of losing $1,000 than a difference it would make if they gained a thousand. If you gave somebody a thousand, it wouldn't make, but if they were to lose a thousand, it changes their behavior. It's a funny, it's a funny dichotomy of, I mean, they should be valued the same, but somehow losing really. And I I think, so I don't have that sense as much. It would be a bummer, but I I can get back up on my feet. Um, I also, to a fault, get super excited into the game. Once the game gets started, like, it's really hard to pull me out of the game. And so once it's going, I'm just going to go until, you know, we get to a, we get to a result uh, that we're, that we're aiming for. So I probably lose a bit of perspective if I'm being fair Um, more times than not, it's worked out in my favor. So I've turned it into a positive trait, but there's definitely some negative aspects to it as well. If I'm, if I'm being honest about it. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, maybe we could pivot a bit uh, just into the restaurant industry or your expertise. Um, I, I was curious, obviously, now with the, the corona situation uh, and, the, and the crisis, so sort of how you see the, the future. Uh, we, we can dive into the, the aggregators and, and dark kitchens and all kinds of things or wherever you want to take it. But I, I, I was just curious from your standpoint, how you see how you see this whole, all working out over the coming years. Right. It's, first of all, super difficult. Uh, it's It's brutal and you know, my hat goes off to all the people working that have tried to keep life normal for 
a lot of the rest of us, um, putting their risk on the table every day. And, um, and a lot of entrepreneurs who started businesses that have been wiped out. It's kind of hard to remember because the stock market's back up for a lot of businesses, but there are a lot of uh, consumer-facing retail, whether it's airlines or restaurants or hotels that are nowhere near back. And it's it's brutal and it affects a huge part of the population. The restaurant industry is one of the largest employers in, the, in pretty much every country. And um, it's been really, really hit. So uh, first of all, I think that's important to, to think about. Uh, in terms of what it does, it, it, there's been a shift in Europe, and I'm more of an expert of it in Europe than I am the U.S. The U.S. has been pretty consolidated under big brands for a while. Um, it's, it's more than half, half the restaurant space in the United States is, is branded chained uh, concepts. Whereas in Europe, that number is not even a third of that. And um, you, you've got a market that's going to continue to consolidate. So this is going to drive that for sure. Uh, mom and pops are going to go out of business. They're not going to be able to handle it. Chains in the short term are going to shrink because they're not going to be able to afford the real estate. They're going to take opportunities to cut, especially in cities like London and, and uh, that have been completely disrupted as the financial sector has not had people coming back to work, et cetera. Uh, obviously, like so many places, it's hyperspeeded the shift to delivery which means digital because it's digital connection with the driver, it's digital connection with the ordering. Um, hopefully it will end up uh, balancing out where the restaurant gets some more control back, whether that's uh, people moving to voice because right now everything is through an iPad or through a phone or um, and it's all clicked in off an app and uh, the app controls a lot of it. Uh, I think that will shift. I think the restaurant space itself will figure out how to get a relationship direct back to uh, the customer. I think that you'll see it's been very slow. If, if you talk to your friends or you look at uh, certainly the white collar space, uh, people overestimate how much conversation there has been around uh, health and wellness and, and healthy residents. The truth is it's been growing super slowly. Um, yeah. 2% to 3% of overall meals. Um, so that's going to pick up uh, for sure. And you mean better uh, for you foods like Impossible yes. Burger Wings? Yeah, um, we won't get into advertisements for one name or another, but and I'm not sure I would agree with you on that health choice. But uh, uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, the, the honest green sort of uh, environments of uh, is getting more attention and people are, thinking about what they're eating a, a, a bit more. Uh, it's it's still a minority, but it's going to grow faster. Uh, the ease of omni-channel, getting it where I want it, when I want it, how I want it, uh, has certainly been sped up. And this idea that you brought up of, of dark kitchens, and people are figuring out lots of different ways to do dark kitchens, basically how to create you know more choice for the customer uh, as they want it. At, at less expensive costs. And that's going to continue. I mean, we're getting better and better food. If you look back at the United States over the last 50 years, sort of every year, food gets better in America, right? Same is true in England. Food is getting better. Um, and now it's going to get better for you as well. And it's not getting any more expensive. The, the cost of eating out has not risen as a part of our 
um, as a part of our wallet in decades. And it's not going to. We keep getting better and better food for cheaper and cheaper. And that's pretty incredible. Uh, and technology is helping that. And now um, it's helping it even more. So I'm quite bullish on uh, how we'll eat and the cost of it and the convenience of it. I think it's all headed in a good direction. But you, you mentioned um, that maybe actually some of the restaurants will get control back. So you, so you mean maybe that the aggregators will start to lose a bit of power? You were, I think, one of the earlier uh, uh, executives to notice, obviously, the, the power that these aggregators were, were, were going to have or, and have now. Maybe, maybe you could just talk a little bit about your, your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah, we were the first restaurant company in the world to actually buy our own aggregator, um, which was uh, fantastic. Uh, then we bought into the leading aggregator in uh, Spain called Glovo as it was building up and took a position in that. Uh, it is uh, very much the power of the app. I mean, we all know how it was when Uber came. You had Uber and Lyft and they ended up controlling 100% of the market. And now, depending on what city you're in, you're starting to see um, different taxi services come up with apps or people looking at electric cars, um, if they have more of an environmental bent. And you're starting to see some at the edges uh, competition there. And uh, if you look at Uber's stock price, obviously it has not done as well as they expected going into the IPO. And then post IPO, it hasn't performed. And I think that's uh, for a, a myriad of reasons, but it's because you're starting to see some some choice and competition in that space. And it's not as endless growth as, as they expected. Uh, the aggregator space has been a lot about consolidation, a lot about getting um, it's been very f rapid growth, but uh, we are going to use voice more and you're not going to use necessarily the same app. You're just going to say to Siri or Alexa or Google, you know, hey, Siri, I want. And then you, a lot of times you're going to order what you normally order. And that relationship doesn't have to be through an, an aggregator. That can be, you know, your restaurant chain directly with a contract with Apple um, having that access on the voice side. So I think that's one. I think that restaurants obviously were not sophisticated, as sophisticated as the aggregators um, in understanding the power and the value of their data and having that direct. So now they do. They're starting to build their own apps. They're starting to build in the direct customer relationship through loyalty and other pieces that are going to allow them to have um, that direct relationship and market directly to you. And, and then you're starting to see a lot more third-party delivery companies that don't necessarily control the order process. It's much cheaper for the restaurant to outsource just the delivery without out outsourcing the customer relationship. So the stronger brands, the brands that have more of a direct relationship with the customer, will be easier for them, obviously. Um, it's harder if you're one-off mom and pop. I mean, how can you spend the money on getting the direct uh, relationship? But for those that do and have a trusted brand, uh, I think you'll see more and more trying to build and, and claw that back from uh, from the aggregators. And then on, on the dark kitchens, I think you, you've uh, mentioned previously that there's obviously certain kinds of food that are better for delivery and for dark kitchens. And so I, I know that the uh, I think the founder of Uber, if I'm not wrong, is, is spending a terrific amount of money on uh, on buying dark right. kitchen properties and so on. But do you think that's a good idea? I, you, it sounds like you're bullish on dark kitchens, but maybe it's not. It doesn't apply to every kind of food group, obviously. It doesn't apply to every kind of food group and it doesn't apply to every kind of brand. Um, but from a Western point of view, which is what this conversation is so far, uh, you really have to just look, I think, to Asia. 
Asia has had delivery only services in their very uh, populated cities, urban uh, spaces. Uh, they've already realized the cost of real estate is is ridiculous. You don't get to see restaurant spaces. So, you know, go to China and a lot of restaurants are on fifth floor, sixth floor, et cetera. Um, retail prime spaces were very expensive. Um, a lot of the delivery restaurants were tucked around the corner, et cetera, very small kiosk style stuff. Um, so it's a much, much bigger part of the restaurant scene in Asia is we call them dark kitchens. For them, they were just sort of operating kitchens in the area. So I, I think the West will realize that managing the PL and the cost of it is just a lot cheaper. And now delivery is becoming more and more of a prevalent aspect of what the customer wants. Uh, so in the real cost ends up, I think, on the grocery side. More, everybody thought this was going to kill restaurants. I'm not sure because a lot of times we use restaurants for the enjoyment, the experience, getting together with friends, sharing, et cetera. It doesn't replace that. It replaces maybe the maybe a little bit the Domino's experience because they've got more competition. But I don't think it uh, – so it's more – I don't want to cook. I, I don't know if you read that UBS report from two or three years ago that said the kitchen is dead. That's probably right. The kitchen is dead. Uh, it, it doesn't mean restaurants are dead. and as long as you know restaurants give a great environment and excitement and build a brand, there's there's room for that. But dark kitchens will take more and more of different occasions. You've also talked about obviously they, they're going to need to reconfigure the restaurants because you have delivery drivers and so on going in in, in the front, and, and right. the, the whole model is going to have to be changed, I suppose. For sure. Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit about Vapiano. You you exited Amrest, I guess, in 2019, and it didn't take you long to get back into um, uh, back into the restaurant business. You just couldn't stay away, I suppose. Um, I don't know what you're comfortable talking about with Vapiano, but it's an interesting brand, widely widely recognized, I think, around the world. And uh, I was just curious what what the the case was uh, on on Vapiano and and turning it around. Well, I don't think you've met my friend Mario Bauer, but Mario Bauer was the uh, CEO for the international part of uh, Vapiano until three years ago uh, when he left. And uh, he is bigger than life. He just has a super big, warm heart. Uh, to give you an idea, he lives on a boat in Amsterdam and everybody calls him the teddy bear. So he's installing this uh, double life-size uh, teddy bear on the front entrance to his boat. Um, so it's uh, that kind of warm uh, spirit. And he, uh, he and I were looking at this prior to uh, COVID and uh, thinking it was an opportunity because the, the shareholders had sort of lost their way. They weren't agreeing. Uh, you lost the culture piece. It was a classic example where the culture and the structure were separating and the company was just being torn apart because of it. So the shareholders had one idea and the old culture had a different idea and it got broken apart. So Mario said it's a great opportunity to get back into and I followed him and COVID, you know, just offered a, a great opportunity to step back in. And and it's fun looking at these points again of just how do you rebuild a team? How do you build the excitement? It's in 26 countries. So that's a, a challenge. It's a business that had three years of serious decline. So you need to halt that and you know, get some belief back, but it's it's certainly hard in a time where a lot of the countries are going through lockdown number two now, and the industry is in such turmoil. 
but we're pretty bullish. I mean, I'm, uh, I think we're, we're happy in 90% of the places we're, we're doing better than we would have expected when we open up. We've got some challenges because bringing businesses out of a trouble in the most troubled time in the industry ever is, uh, is some hard work. Uh, but uh, I would say it's made me more bullish. Uh, we'll look at you know what other opportunities there are for for growth. Uh, if there were if there were five or six reasons for me to get back in the restaurant space before COVID, there's at least a hundred now, right? Um, so it's going to be an interesting next couple of years, that's for sure. So are you going to become the chief emotional officer of Bapiano, or, or you're just going to stay, stay on the sidelines? Not yet. Not okay. yet. Don't that, that's uh, that's Mario's job, and he's doing a great job with it. So. Uh, Right now, I don't need to do that yet. Got it. Understood. No, that sounds great. And and what I, I guess is, it's a unique brand um, in terms of how it operates with the card. And and so, what could you just talk about right. what attracted you to that that I guess um, style or, or uh, business strategy that they have? Well, it's a fast, casual, affordable brand, right? Uh, I don't think the cards work uh, long term. The the world has moved on since those cards were introduced. We all carry a card in our phone basically all day long. So why have that? So it needs a new customer journey. It needs a new digital wake up, something they should have evolved. They didn't, we will evolve it. Um, So I love the fast casual space. Italian is always the most popular everywhere in the world. You usually have your national cuisine, then Italian, and then something else. So it's in a great space. It's an affordable brand uh, positioned uh, a bit above where you would think, you know, based on the check. So I love the value orientation between quality to, to price. So great space, great price, and a lot of different opportunities to evolve it. And then I like things that have so many different optionalities. You've got a lot of different countries where it's established, doing well. Um, it's got growth opportunities in, I don't know, more than a dozen countries right now. So we get to really think about where is it that it makes most sense to put our capital and, and grow and develop this? So we're, we're excited by the different optionality and, and, and the quality of the brand in people's minds versus how far it had been taken so quickly down. Interesting. Um, maybe aside from Bapiano and Amrest, I, I was curious if there was one restaurant related or, or delivery ag- aggregator, whatever you, you want to say in, in, the, in the food business that you just think you'd love to own. Then you'll know what I'm going to go after next. Uh, the uh, no, I I think that is there anybody that I would love to own? It's a good question. I I love the. It's out of the restaurant space, so I'm. It's in the food space, but it's out of the restaurant space. That, that's I fine. Think, <laughs> I think what we're doing where the world is headed in terms of uh, lab-grown meats, and that always sounds so bad to people at the beginning, but I think the environmental aspects, not to go vegetarian, but to use science to our benefit, and the Memphis meats of the world, uh, the companies that are using science, using the best quality meats, and taking that cell culture multiplying that cell culture so we have a more sustainable way of eating great meat. That's got me the most excited. I think we're going to be eating phenomenal steaks without any of the destruction to the environment that we're talking about. So I would love to own the the leading 
player in that space. Fascinating. And, and it, it won't be like, it'll, it won't be synthetic foods. It'll be the real thing you're saying. That's right. I think you're going to take the best Kobe steak. You're going to find that perfect cow. You're going to take out exactly what you want. And we're going to figure out how to replicate it with all that beautiful marbling and the perfect protein. And we're going to get it. And you're going to cut into that juicy steak and you're going to be, yes, this is what I wanted without, you know, five acres of destroyed waterlands and the rest of it that, that we have from the cattle industry or any other. I don't want to pick on any one industry. It's just, it's not sustainable to feed this much protein to this many people um, with the environment today, but we still should be having, and for, you know, I'm not even bringing up the whole issue of animal treatment and the rest of it. There's just such a better way to do this sustainably and not have to eat, you know, a beetroot. That's not a burger. I mean, come on. It's just, that's not a burger, right? I mean, so not even um, close. They're, they're right. I mean, they're good. They're fine. They do what they want and you can be vegetarian. It's great, but wouldn't it be nice not to choose vegetarian because that's what's better for the environment? It'd be nice to choose you want to eat vegetarian because you think that's better for your health. Fine. But let's not have the environment dictate what we're eating. Let's just solve that. Yeah, you're making me hungry with the Kobe uh, marbled steak. It sounds oh, sound it's good. gonna be good, man. <laughs> <laughs> just just to, uh, on the sort of closing part here, just to pivot back, I, I guess um, one of my questions was if you were 23 again and and Georgetown, uh, thinking you're going to become a doctor and and you wanted to go on yeah. one of these adventures, where, where where would you go? What would you do? God, you know, the world has uh, changed so much. It was so easy back then because you just asked everybody what's the most interesting thing happening in the world and literally like eight out of ten people would say the fall of the wall um you know if you went if you went 10 years later it was probably the rise of china it was so easy uh in uh in early 2000s say okay you should go to china today the world there's so many things that are changing quickly uh in different segments uh you know i love what's happening in the tech space we just talked about, and that's not just food, that's so many places. So go to Silicon Valley or or just find what interests you. What's happening in the biomedical world is, is fascinating. Uh, it's hard to read the global aspects. We've been calling Africa, you know, the continent of the next decade, but we've been saying that for four decades or five decades. So which decade is it gonna become true? It, feels kind of hard right now with COVID, feels quite disrupted. China is very mature, but it's wonderful. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly if I would choose geographically at the moment, or I would choose more what sector of, of the world interests you the most and go with it. There's going to be a ton on environmental issues. There are going to be a ton in different areas. So choose choose one of these fast-moving areas that interests you and go spend time in it. Yeah, so more sector focus, as you say, rather Correct. than geography, as the, the the globe has sort of become one. Um, Correct. I, I noticed um, that uh, sadly Don Kindle, uh, senior, I think he was ninety nine, passed away a month or so ago. Um, and I was curious what he he meant to you. I know you, you touched on it earlier your your PepsiCo context, and and for way of background, I think he was the CEO of PepsiCo and did a, a right. fantastic job building that. Maybe you could just talk a bit briefly about him and and what he uh, taught you and what he meant to you. Evan, he meant everything. He was phenomenal. He was a person who walked into the room and you didn't even know how, but everybody in the room felt better. He had this sparkle in his eye, had this positive energy. I, I described to his son, his name is also Don, a couple of days after the sad news I was talking to him, I said, you know, what I, hit me overnight. He was like this 
magic king. He would walk in and he would touch you and you felt more was possible and life was better. That's what Don was. He, he touched you and you thought you could do more and life was better than it was before he walked in the room. Uh, he was just this bright light with a positive view. You know, he went into all the troubles of China and, and Russia. And this is way before I was there. This is like, you know, 70, 69 in the heart of the Cold War. And he, you know, he helped build up the Institute for East West Studies. He, he was at the kitchen debate. He believed these countries could succeed if we gave them a good relationship and, and opportunities about. He was just a very positive, the glass is half full. We can do a lot more in the world than we think we can. And uh, phenomenal man, phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I was reading over his, his you know, all, all the things that he'd done. It, it just uh, it was amazing. And make yes. it 99 years. Um, yes. I guess maybe, maybe just to, to wrap up, that was beautiful. Uh, maybe you could just talk about sort of your, your proudest moment. I mean, uh, at Amrest, you, you mentioned all these, these stories and the brands and, and all the experiences, but I, I was just wondering if there's one specific thing about Amrest uh, looking back now that you're, you're proud of in particular. Well, I have to tell you on our 25th anniversary, we took uh, 700 people to Barcelona to, to celebrate. And uh, we were there for three or four days and, we would do this regularly. It's called our Leadership University of Amherst. And the team was incredibly generous to me, uh, celebrating the 25 years and just thanking. So I couldn't have been more proud than after those three days and feeling how many lives we had uh, built up and changed and, and brought positive energy to. So back to the Don Kendall uh, conversation, I felt like I took a, a bit of what I had learned from him and was able to pass it on as well. So. It was great. Thanks, Henry. That was awesome. We really appreciate it. This is presented by VanChap Capital LLC for informational purposes only. The future-looking statements and opinions expressed herein do not necessarily represent VanChap's views and opinions and may over time be proven inaccurate. VanChap may or may not manage securities positions of the issuers discussed in this presentation. Nothing herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation for an offer to buy any security. VanChap does not guarantee the accuracy of the information provided herein, and this presentation should not be the basis of any investment decision.